And uh, I also want to just, when you come into the pulpit, you can pretty much get away with anything. No one can stop you. So a little announcement as well. If you're uh, in the younger age category, that's under 30. Oh, is it falling off? Sorry. Thank you. Sorry, if you're, if you're in the younger age category, that's under the age of 30, you're welcome to come uh, back to our house after the service. There's a whole bunch of folks coming, and there'll be some space for some more. So just meet downstairs uh, at the front doors after the service and come along. Uh, you'd be welcome to do that. On Friday the 10th of October last month, the BBC show Mastermind witnessed a lively exchange. A Christian contestant, Catherine Price, was appearing on the show. Her specialist subject, the Gospels of the New Testament. It was prior to the general knowledge round and presenter John Humphreys was interviewing Mrs. Price. Immediately, he labelled the Gospels, quote, a tricky subject. And he suggested that the four Gospels are, in fact, contradictory. Next, in a misstatement of fact, Humphreys then stated that none of the Gospels were eyewitness accounts. And finally, when Mrs. Price defended the Gospel writer Luke as a thorough historian who had invested Gated everything from the beginning, Humphreys curtly replied, but he would say that, wouldn't he? A spokesman of the Christian Institute commented, it is inconceivable that a Muslim contestant answering questions on the Quran would be treated in the same way. Now, such incidents, multiplying it seems, rightly give the Christian church in the United Kingdom today, much cause for concern. We have more than a perception, and it is not paranoia, that increasingly the Christian faith, once the bedrock of our nation, is now increasingly a castle under siege. We feel that even compared with other religions, all of which getting a bad rap, Christianity is a particular target. And yet, what we must be mindful of is that the Christian faith has always been so singled out. Christianity has nigh been confronted. For example, as we march towards the conclusion of our series in Acts, we find that much of its remainder is essentially wave after wave after wave of attack upon the early Christians. And it is in response to this that the Apostle Paul, who was time and again at the forefront of the brunt of these attacks, that the Apostle makes his defense. And by this we learn that sometimes it is appropriate for us as Christians to play defense. So let's turn, if you would, this evening to Acts chapter 21. It's in Acts chapter 22 where we find the first of five 
defenses that Paul makes. But chapter 21 gives us the context of this. So let's turn to Acts 21. I've entitled this section and this sermon, Self-Defense. The context briefly is that Paul has been falsely accused of being anti-Jewish. A Jewish crowd have been stirred up. Paul has been seized and set upon. But he has been saved temporarily by the Roman soldiers. And this is where we pick up the story from Acts 21, verse 37. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, May I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the desert some time ago? Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please, let me speak to the people. Having received the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. Under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers, and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as also the high priest and all the council can testify. I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, Suddenly, a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord, I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking. Quick, he said to me, leave Jerusalem immediately, because they will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these men know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you 
And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and questioned in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do, he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a big price for my citizenship. But I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to question him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. This is our reading from God's Word. May God's Spirit help us to understand it tonight. Now, one of the interpretive keys to unlocking the meaning of this story is to notice what Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 22. Brothers and fathers, listen to my defense. This is Paul's explanation, really, of most of the story that we have in front of us. For Paul, this speech, and arguably the incident that follows in the Roman courtyard, is unashamedly a defense on his part. The Greek word for defense is apologia, from which we get the term apologetics. And apologetics for the uninitiated is simply the act of stating a case in defense of something or other. Well, here is Paul, and he is playing defense. He is making his apologetic in this situation. And it's a reminder to us that there is a time and a place for defense. Uh, dare I say, there is a time and a place for evasive action, sometimes in our Christian experience. We need to understand that while God promises suffering on the one hand for the Christian, that he does not promote stupidity. That if there is a way that in staying faithful to God, we can avoid unnecessary persecution, then we should certainly take that pathway and route. We are missionaries who may suffer, not masochists who wish to suffer. And so Acts chapter 9. Endangered in Damascus, Paul was lowered from the city in a basket of all things. Talk about evasive action by night. Or you recall in Acts 19, 
during the rite in Ephesus where Paul had wished unwisely to throw himself among the wolves who would tear him limb from limb and his wise friends come alongside and they say, bad idea, Paul. If you're going to continue preaching the gospel, you're going to have to have some more smarts than this. And again here in Acts 21, upon the occasion of Paul being set upon by an angry Jewish mob, and then upon the occasion of falling into the hands of the brutal Roman establishment, Paul makes his apologetic. He defends himself, and he defends his credentials, and he ultimately defends the Lord Jesus Christ. And so for a few moments, I want to consider with you together the nature of Paul's defense. Now, look at the passage with me. Let me suggest to you, and you can check this as I go through this, that there are three lines to Paul's defense. It's rather like one of these, you know, if you've been up to Edinburgh Castle, you go in through the outer wall, but there's then an interior wall. And that's often how it was in, in these castles, wasn't it? Multiple lines of defense. Well, Paul has three lines of defense. Number one, the presentation of Paul as the zealous Jew. The zealous Jew. And we've got to remember that the charge being brought against Paul was that he was anti-Jewish. Paul's opponents had tarred him black with the smear uh, that being an apostle to the Gentiles, logical leap, therefore Paul was anti-Jewish in every respect. Uh, you see what he's, they say of him in verse 28 of uh, chapter 21, that Paul is against the Jewish people and against the Jewish law and against the Jewish place or the temple. In other words, they're saying Paul is completely anti-Semitic. Now, having been given leave by the Roman commander uh, to address the people uh, from the safety of Roman security... And on the steps leading up to the Roman barracks, uh, Paul begins to set them straight. And he says to them, essentially, you've picked upon the wrong guy to call anti-Semitic. Because in actual fact, I am Jewish through and through. First of all, he says that ethnically, verse 3, I am a Jew. And just as a Scot would hardly slander another Scotsman, maybe an Irishman or an Englishman just occasionally, uh, neither would a Jew slander a fellow Jew. Additionally, he says, I'm Jewish educationally. I was born in the city of Tarsus in Cilicia, yes, but I was brought up in the city of Jerusalem. And here in Jerusalem, in the Jewish heartland, I was instructed under Gamaliel. And all of the crowd would have known who Gamaliel was. And they would have understood from this that Paul was therefore brought up as a Pharisee, the Pharisees being the most fastidious group when it came to Jewish law-keeping. They were legalistic law-keepers. And so to proclaim the value of the law to someone like Paul was rather like bringing snow to the Eskimos. And then along with his Jewishness, Paul so also emphasizes his zealousness. See, Paul wasn't merely just a Jew. He wasn't just a rank-and-file Jew. He certainly wasn't a nominal Jew. He was a zealous Jew. I persecuted, verse 4, the followers of this way to their death. 
That's how concerned I was to protect and preserve Judaism. He said, I even arrested men and women, irrespective of gender. That's how serious I was. And then he adds that they can check this up with the high priest and all of the Sanhedrin because they gave Saul, as he was called then, letters to take to Damascus to arrest Christians. Now, do you see what Paul is doing in this section? On the one hand, this is a defense against the ludicrous claim that Paul is anti-Semitic. Paul is arguing, this doesn't marry with the facts, this cannot be true of me. But notice what Paul is also implying here. Because what Paul is also saying by implication is, he's saying, you know, I have sat where you sit. And I have stood in your zealous sandals. Look at what he says in verse 3. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. In other words, before Paul gets to his testimony, which he's about to, a testimony which emphasizes the difference between Paul and them. He is a new creation in Christ. Before he emphasizes the difference, he emphasizes the similarity between he and they. And he says, I used to be in the same position as you. Been there, done that, bought the t-shirt. I mean, Paul knew what it was, didn't he? To be consumed with the idea of his own righteousness before God. By his own law-keeping. By his own temple attendance. He thought that by these things, he could somehow, you know, total up the points and get a pass mark with God. You remember how in Philippians chapter 3, Paul stacks up all of the merits that he thought he had before God. But you came to realize against gaining Christ was just nothing. But Paul says, I, I used to think differently. I think this is a very instructive lesson here for those of us who are Christians, first of all, just to not get a cut above ourselves when we're evangelizing those that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. We didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ either. And realize tonight, if you're not a Christian, that the Christians around you are not condemning you. We're in no place to condemn you. We've come from the very same sorts of backgrounds as as you've come from. Whether you're trying to build your own tower of righteousness to God, or whether it is you come uh, from a a lifestyle that is composed of filthiness and, and lostness. So many of us here could have the Apostle Paul say to us, as he did to the Corinthians, that is what some of you once were. Even though in Jesus we are now new creations. Well, this was Paul's first emphasis, and it was also his first line of defense. He was a zealous Jew. Now, secondly, notice the next line of defense, because Paul, further to this, presents himself as the chosen witness. See, evidently Paul's life has taken a turn. There's no denying it. And while he is still sympathetic to his Jewish heritage, there is no doubt that Paul is both a new creation by nature and that also in terms of his mission, he is on a new mission. And yet what Paul is keen to stress is that this change, this alteration has come at the hand of God alone. 
That's what's unmistakable in Paul's retelling of his testimony, that from his conversion to his commission, it has been God who is and has been the active agent. Over this story, right, God at work in Paul's conversion and commission. First of all, as we retrace the story, think of the active nature of God in this. First of all, something he saw. A blinding light. Paul, or Saul as he was known, you know, he wasn't looking for the light of the world. The light of the world came looking for Saul. He was just marching up to Damascus. He had his letters in his uh, cloak. Ready to arrest Christians in this city. He wasn't looking for the Lord Jesus. And then the Lord Jesus quite literally stops him in his tracks and blinds him with his glory. In fact, it's a striking note about this incident. I think it's only recorded here in Acts that it took place at noon. And this emphasizes that while the, the glory of the, of the noonday sun was in the sky, here was an infinitely greater and more dazzling glory, the very glory of heaven, the very glory of God's Son. And so this is very much the initiative of God. And then as well as something he saw, there was also something he heard. It wasn't that uh, Saul spoke to the Lord on the Damascus road. It was that the Lord spoke to Saul. A voice speaks with a question, verse 7. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul immediately knows that it's God speaking. Because uh, he says in verse 8, Who are you, Lord? And the answer he receives is utterly shocking. From something he saw and heard, to someone he met, Jesus. The voice replies, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And in an instant, Saul realizes that the very Jesus whom he has been persecuting is actually the same Jesus who is the Prince of Life and who is the Jewish Messiah. What do you do when you've been persecuting the Prince of Life. It's a bit of a quandary. Well, notice something he did. Fourthly, Paul's led into the city. He regains his sight at the hands of Ananias. I love Ananias' urgency. Don't you? He could probably better improve many a preacher, this urgency. And it would certainly move many a procrastinator off their seat. He says in verse 15, And now, what are you waiting for? Get up. Be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. To call on his name, that's Jesus' name, it simply means to cry out to Jesus for salvation. It means that in faith we depend fully on the person and on the cross work of the Lord Jesus who died on the cross to pay the price and to bear the condemnation and shame for our sin. And then baptism though not saving in itself, symbolizes that salvation that we receive. In picture form, one of the things it portrays is that our sins have been washed away, that all the blackness on the inside has now been cleansed. And so here is this Saul. He is believing, and then he is baptized. And a notorious sinner, in God's perspective, amazingly comes to faith by the sovereign work of God. And you know, it's a reminder 
that no matter how notorious you are in your sin, God is so much stronger and He is so much more able to overcome your resistance than you realize. I don't know what kind of things you've done in the past, but I'm pretty sure that very few of us here have messed up as much as the Apostle Paul did. Unless you've killed some Christians recently. Yet Paul was rescued. And God can stop you in your tracks tonight. And yet it's not just God's work to convert Saul. He also, notice this, he deigns to commission him as well. So as as well as something he saw and heard, and as well as someone he met, and as well as something he did, notice, finally, something he would do in the future. See, as many people have pointed out, Saul Paul's conversion and commission were, were almost simultaneous events. And Ananias says to him, Saul, God has got a job for you to do. Verse 14, the God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one. The righteous one was an Old Testament uh, description of the Messiah. And here is Paul, and he has truly now seen the righteous one. He's seen the risen Jesus for himself, as all the apostles did. And to hear the words from his mouth. And then God says to him, and this is the key phrase, and you will be his witness to, underline this, all men. This is Paul's job. This is what he's been chosen to do. Not just to be a witness for Jesus. And not just to be a witness to Jews, but to be a witness to all men. Now, the the, the expanse of this took Paul some time to get his head around. And this is why we get this little story at at the end of that section. Because Paul went back down to Jerusalem. This was some three years, probably, after his conversion. He goes into the city of his upbringing. And what do you think Paul wanted to do when he got into Jerusalem? He wanted to tell everybody about Jesus. He wanted to evangelize the city. He wanted to see a revival in the place. But it wasn't to be. And God appears to Paul in a vision. And he says, Paul, get out of Jerusalem quick. And it's interesting, isn't it, that Paul tries to sort of debate with the divine. You know, which is not a debate you're going to win, probably. Uh, and, And he says, Lord, I've got credibility with these people. I mean, not a very nice sort of credibility, but when they were chucking the stones and killing Stephen, I was holding the jackets. You know, I used to be on their team. They're not going to, they're not going to persecute me. But Paul's grasping at straws. And, and, and while others will indeed evangelize Jerusalem, this is not Paul's task. And so God says to him in verse 21, and I imagine, I just imagine with a little tenderness, he says, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. There's there's a sense in which Paul doesn't even have a choice in this. Probably not the mission he would have chosen. But it's what God chooses for him to do. And as as we bring these two parts together, both Paul's conversion and his commission, what really Paul is saying is this. He's saying, my whole life And my whole ministry, everything has been down to God. God saved me and God sent me. And the reason this is an apologetic, him being a chosen witness, by the way, it's an apologetic because he's saying to them, and if you've got a problem with any of this, you need to take it up with a higher throne. Because God did it. 
God chose me. You know, brothers and sisters, can I say to you this evening that this is also our defense, our explanation, and our apologetic. This is also, in a sense, what we need to say when our non-Christian friends give us that squinty look and say, why are you a Christian again? Because they can't understand it. Even when we've given them all the arguments. And the ultimate thing we have to say to them is this. The reason I am a Christian is because of God. I probably wouldn't have chosen this route. You're right enough. But God intervened. My salvation and my service are wholly and utterly and entirely down to God. Now I know there's such a thing, of course, in the Bible... There's such a thing as human responsibility and there's human response. But in the final analysis, none of us can ultimately say that by our own steam, unaided, we found God. All of us are Paul's. Put it in the picture of the psalmist. It wasn't that I climbed my way out of my pit. It was that the Lord reached down and he lifted me out. We used to sing that old uh, hymn. I don't know if we've sung, sung this at the chapel or not. From sinking sands. He lifted me. With tender hand, He lifted me. From shades of night to plains of light. All praise His name. He lifted me. Or if you prefer a modern version of it, you know, You lifted me. You raised me up. A living hope of grace revealed. And have you ever thought about the chorus? You loved me before I knew you. That's an amazing thing to say, isn't it? But it's biblical. And this was true of Paul. While Paul hated Jesus, when Paul hated Jesus, Jesus loved him so much that he confronted him and befriended him on the Damascus Road. And he utterly changed his life back to front and inside out. May that be the case for someone here this evening. And may that be, if you're a Christian, your joy and your assurance and your hope of perseverance. God is holding you. So this is Paul's second defense, and it's a lovely one, isn't it? He's a chosen witness. He says, don't blame me, blame God if you've got a problem with me being saved and being sent to the Gentiles. But then there's a third and final defense that comes at the end of the story. The zealous Jew, the chosen witness, but thirdly, the Roman Citizen. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? Some BBC presenters, you've probably heard about this, this week made some gross and inappropriate comments and there was something like 24,000 complaints about it. Well, you would think that the Apostle Paul had said something much more scandalous than this because it's not 24,000 complaints he gets, it's an angry mob of people ready to kill him. And what was it that Paul had said? Well, he had simply said that he had been sent to preach to the Gentiles. And this was anathema to the Jews. And so the indignation of the crowd is enormous. Verse 22. Here's a mob of angry men ready to kill the apostle. The truth in this story is not that Paul is anti-Jewish. The truth in this story is that the Jews are anti-Gentile. That's really the truth of the matter. And so the Roman soldiers um, at this point are getting quite concerned because they don't want a riot in the temple. 
not on their watch. They're there to secure the temple. And all these Jews are going crazy. And they say, quick, let's get Paul into the barracks. And let's find out what on earth this is all about. So they take him into the barracks. And one of the keys to understanding this is, of course, Paul was addressing them in Aramaic. And the Roman soldiers probably didn't understand much of what he was saying. And so, back in Greek again, they say, we're going to get some answers from this guy. And the intention of the Romans is to beat the information out of Paul. Why is it that people are so mad at you? Let's give you a few stripes and ask you the question. This was an exceptionally brutal beating. Verse 24 says that the commander directed that Paul be flogged and questioned. And this was unlike anything that Paul himself had suffered in the past. Five times Paul had received 39 lashes. Three times Paul had been on the receiving end of beatings with rods. Once he had a crowd of people try and stone him to death. But he'd never been flogged. The flagellum was a whip consisting of a wooden handle. It had leather thongs. And on the end of the leather thongs, there was bits of chipped bone or metal. And when it struck the skin, I'm not going to just try and describe it to you, it damaged the skin, the back, the legs, horrifically. It was known to cripple some. It was even known to kill others because the blood loss was so severe. And flogging, of course, was what the Lord Jesus himself suffered before his crucifixion. And so here's Paul, and and as he's been stretched out in preparation for the flogging, we don't know if it was a post that he was lent over, we don't know whether it was a a rope coming down from the roof that they tied him to, but he's he's getting stretched out, and at almost the last possible moment, Paul, what what does he do? Does he sing a verse of Onward Christian Soldier? To believe, but also to suffer? I mean, that's what he said to the Philippians. Not in this case. Paul says, hold on a minute. You have no right to do this. He says this to the centurion who's binding him for the beating. Is it legal for you? Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen? And so the intention of the Romans is met with the revelation of the apostle. What a revelation. What a bombshell. Now, while being a Roman citizen probably means little to us, this would and this did set off loud alarm bells for these Roman soldiers. To be a Roman citizen was a prized thing. It came with protections and it came with privileges. And one of the protections was that you could not, well, first of all, you couldn't be beaten without a trial. There had to be formal charges brought against you. And you were not allowed to be questioned under torture. Cicero, the writer of this period wrote, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime, to flog him an abomination, to slay him, to hit him, is almost an act of murder. These soldiers could get serious comeuppance themselves if they broke the law in this way. No wonder the guard rushes to his superior. And no wonder the superior quickly scuttles down the stairs. You know, he's in charge of a thousand people, but he's running probably to Paul. 
And he says, is this true that you're a Roman citizen? And Saul says, Paul says, it is true. And he doesn't check any papers because if you lied about being a Roman citizen when you weren't, the penalty was death, so nobody lied about it. And the guy says, that's quite something. These are so rare, these you know, Roman citizen titles. I had to bribe my way to get one. And Paul says, well, I can go one better than you, pal. I got mine by birthright. And so very scared. The conclusion of the torture quickly follows. They withdrew immediately, verse 29, alarmed that they had chained and almost flogged a Roman citizen. Beloved, you know, sometimes we talk about the patience and wisdom of Job in suffering. Sometimes we need to show the wisdom also of Paul in evading unnecessary suffering. We've talked about this in previous weeks, that we must recognize that some of the laws of our land give us protections as well. Well, by the certain final defense, Paul would live to die another day. And not only did he save his own skin, we must recognize in this that he was protecting himself as a preacher of the gospel. Paul's self-defense was ultimately for the benefit of the proclamation of Christ. And yet, in conclusion, and I couldn't not mention this before finishing tonight, and Peter mentioned this rightly this morning, we cannot cover this story or say something about it without also seeing the parallel and the contrast to the Lord Jesus. In his final journey to Jerusalem, some years before this, Jesus was, of course, on a different mission from Paul. It was a unique mission. No other man in all of human history has been given this mission. And the Son of God, the Son of Man, was commissioned by His Father to stoop, to come down to earth, to suffer, and to substitute Himself as a sacrifice for your sin and for my sin. We were reminded this morning of how Like Paul, Jesus was arrested. Jesus was beaten. And how the crowd chanted, using identical words, away with him. Could have ended up exactly the same for Paul as it did for Jesus. But, we learn tonight that in contrast to Jesus, Paul didn't go to his death. Jesus went further. Jesus did not defend himself. He did not appeal to his right, not as a citizen of Rome, but as a citizen of heaven and as a son of God. He didn't appeal to that. And his lack of self-defense was for my salvation. As he was flogged for my failures, as he was bruised for my transgressions, as he was condemned for my sins, as he was crushed for my iniquities. And since he did all of this, all that he should have received in terms of the approbation and acclamation of heaven becomes mine. As I am accepted before God, as a child of God, in a new life, rather than the condemnation of death. 
I wonder this evening if there is someone here who needs desperately in light of eternity to accept this incredible substitution. I wonder if you're both trusting in and living for the Lord Jesus who was marked out not by his self-defense but by his self-sacrifice. Let's pray. Together. Let's take a moment to deal with God and to come to Him in whatever way would be required tonight. And as we pray individually, we'll then stand and sing in a few moments. That's all together.